you can stay here. Yeah. So I met Manohar in 2003 when I went to India. He, um, his short testimony is, is that because his dad was a pastor, of course, he had to not be a Christian. And so he did some years of running, and then God got a hold of him through um, a, work, a tragedy that happened in a work situation. He became a, he became a missionary after that, preached in North India. He then went and got more education. When I met him in 2003, he was the principal of Mission India um, Theological Seminary, which um, he was training. He was the only—he um, was the principal of the school, professor, and the only guy on, they had on staff who could conjugate Greek on the fly. So much so that when he came to Asbury Seminary, um, in those days what we thought the most important thing to help build the the theological strength of the church in India was to train more people at seminaries. And we wanted the seminary levels to come up, so we said what we need to do is to train Manohar at the PhD level. So I encouraged him for two or three years, right, to come to America and do a PhD at one of our Bible-believing but academically powerful seminaries. And so he came to Asbury Seminary in, I hate to say this out loud, Wilmore, Kentucky. He's not going to the public university. Um, so he went to Asbury Seminary, and um, <clears throat> he's been doing his PhD there. He's done his coursework, and he's doing research now. And, um, but what, what we both found over the, the times I went as an adjunct to teach at his college, and as he was a professor, he realized that most of the students weren't going into ministry. Most of them were coming, taking the classes in English, learning English, and going getting English jobs. And so what he realized was that 80% of the students weren't going to the ministry, and yet 80% of independent Bible-believing pastors throughout all of India had zero training. See, that, that's not working. And so he realized that if he, if he was going to really make the biggest difference he could, it wasn't going to be getting this wonderful degree and then going and being this sort of like revered chair of something at such and such university. He, he felt a call to deliver the education to the pastors already serving who could never afford to leave their church, never afford to come to Bible college, never do that, that he would create a modular thing in education. So he realized he had to not just be a professor, he had to be an educational innovator. And one of the reasons why I love Manohar is because he and I are both in professions that we hate, in this sense. Both of us are like professors. Like, both of us are like, we want to read books and write books, and, and we realize, though, that God called us to lead organizations and to lead people. And that we had to innovate, and we had to change, and we had to be that guy. It, but it's not natural, but we have to do it. That's what we're called to do. And, and so we love it, and it's also hard for us. And so I've loved to be able to be his partner through this. So I asked him to come and preach in our, in our series on the prophets, and he's going to preach on the book of Amos today. So would you guys welcome my friend Manohar. Thank you for that wonderful uh welcoming words um, uh, about me. And uh, well, you'll have to bear with me for my language. And uh, English is my fourth language. And I come from a country which speaks 1,652 languages and dialects. And uh, well, uh, you know, in our house, Jasmine, my wife and I, we exchange almost uh, four languages every day. So, except English, of course. Um, then, uh, so uh, you will have to bear with me. Sometimes you may not understand the things I say, and but you know many things I learned from your pastor, and I'm so grateful to God uh, for your pastor. You know, he mentored me a number of times. And if at all I want to put in one word, the reason I'm here, I mean like in PhD program, that's because of the blessings and uh, good heart of uh, Pastor Nick, you know. Thank God for that. 
And uh, <clears throat> well, uh, I also wanted to uh, share a little testimony uh, because that's what uh, I told to the Lord uh, last year, that wherever I go, if you do this for me, I will share about it. So that you know, it will encourage others to trust God more and more deeply. Well, when I came here to uh, 2012, that was two years ago, uh, I told uh, before my sermon in the introduction that uh, uh, we do not have children, you know. Uh, we were married for uh, uh, 11 years by 2012, and uh, we didn't have children. So we went after fertility doctors for eight years, and, uh, uh, you know, in the process, we both became almost kind of gynecologists. We know what they're trying to do and all, but, uh, you know, nothing happened. Um, so finally, we came back to God, and uh, we began praying every morning, uh, 5.30 to 6 o'clock. Uh, that was our anniversary date, January 25, 2012. And we said, God, um, we need a baby, and give us whether boy or girl, but we will give that baby back to you. Um, we will take the responsibility to raise that uh, child uh, to serve you. And uh, before the year ended, uh, by October, she became pregnant and we have a son. And uh, we named him uh, uh, Jason Abhishek. And he's right here and uh, he's an active baby. You know, sometimes he may shout. It's not that uh, he's trying to disrupt me, but he's in agreement with whatever I say. <laughs> Well, um, actually, uh, we just returned from India a couple of weeks ago um, uh, after serving three and a half months in the field. And God was so gracious to us. Whole month of December, uh, I spent on preaching uh, on the importance of the birth of Jesus Christ uh, in different uh, open-air meetings in India and in the state of Andhra Pradesh. And the result was that uh, you know, uh, we could baptize six people uh, on January 1st. And also, uh, um, we went to uh, Maharashtra where uh, I happened visiting a lot of slums. And at the end of one month ministry, God gave us seven souls and we baptized seven people. And total 13 <laughs> souls added to the kingdom uh, in two months. And uh, in February, uh, mid-February to mid-March, um, the Lord enabled us to train 525 pastors. You know, there is a great need for India. You know, church um, is beautiful on a weak foundation. And foundation is so weak um, that, you know, when persecution happens, um, churches after churches, communities after communities, reconvert back to Hinduism. That's what's happening there. Reconvert back to their own religion um, for various reasons. So, but God gave us a vision to reach out these people with more training, um, more contextual way of reaching these people so that uh, they will be effective in their calling and reach many people for Christ. So um, this uh, is what the Lord has done in the last three and a half months. Now let's uh, look at God's word and now let's turn to the book of Amos. And actually, it is in the Old Testament, and uh, it's, it comes between Joel and Obadiah. And if you look into the uh, Bibles uh, in the pew there, and uh, the page number is 1,418. 1,418. That's where the book of Amos can be opened. And now, uh, let me give you the context in which the book of Amos uh, was uh, uh, written. 
I think uh, you know after the death of King Solomon, Israel was divided into two nations, southern nation called Judah and the northern region called Israel. Well, uh, since its division and King Zerubbabel one uh, has introduced idol worship uh, in the northern kingdom, that's worship of cows, means like calf, plural, in both Dan and uh, Bethel. Bethel is a house of God. Beth plus El, house of God. But now in the house of God, idols are sitting there. That's what's happened um, by King Jeroboam. And now 170 years passed since the time, and now they went further away from God. And of course, they were keeping Baal worship for, for many, many, many years. Now, uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam, that's what you pronounce, too, has come into power. And under his leadership, um, Israel flourished so much. There was a lot of peace and prosperity. You know, people had, um, instead of one house, two houses, summer house and winter house. You know, um, they don't need air conditioning or anything, but they, they structured in such a way that, you know, they can move into. So, and also they had expensive furniture in their houses. And, you know, they had decorative items made up of, made up of ivory. Ivory is very expensive, you know. Even uh, Solomon in all his splendid uh, riches, he had only one thing made up of ivory, that was a throne. But now in Israel, after uh, uh, Israel was bifurcated in two nations, and now they have a lot of riches flourishing. Now they don't need, almost they don't need God. They don't need the word of God because they have temples too. And they go to uh, worship and they carry the sacrifices every morning. And also they have uh, uh, good singing going on and they have a free will offering and thank offering for the prosperity they have. And uh, they bring tithes every three years and whatnot. They do everything. So they thought, well, we are all on the right track in worshiping the Lord and in the, at the same time taking care of the nation. And now King Jeroboam too thought, well, now there is a lot of prosperity. Why not we enlarge the territory? So he was trying to enlarge his territory. But that time comes Amos. The Lord told him, actually Amos is a farmer. He was picking up the figs. And God told, leave all that, go to Israel and prophesy. Then he said, Lord, what should I prophesy? Then he said, go and tell that judgment is coming. Prepare to meet your God. Well, he pondered on that and finally he took a journey from Judah to northern uh, Israel. And now he began, um, you know, his prophecy. If you wanted to know more about him, actually he is one of the earliest uh, prophets who put down the written prophecy among all 12 prophets from all the way from Isaiah to Malachi. Now he brings this prophecy before them and he begins to tell them their own background. Do you believe it's, it's like chapter 2 verse 10 and then he's saying, hey, you guys know that God has brought you from Egypt to Israel. He's beginning from there, how God has raised, you know, they were all suffering, they were, you know, beaten there in uh, Egypt and they didn't have enough food and all that. Now God has taken you from Egypt, the slavery, the suffering, and then taken you to Israel, 
And God has called you, my people, my family, my nation. So you are so much privileged. That's how he begins. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 8. You know, we will not have time to read all these, these uh, references, but I'm trying to give that to you. And if you come to chapter 2, 5, 6, and 8, he also points out how they have missed the point and how they have missed their track following God. And he began telling about their own sins. They were oppressing the poor. They were practicing the injustice to, in the courts. And they practiced sexual immorality, religious abuses, meaning demanding expensive offerings in the, in the, in the temples. And they have violence and they have idolatry, corruption, and whatnot. And they were living a luxurious life. That is what the situation going on. And now, they have not realized that they are too far from the Lord. When we are living in a comfortable place, sometimes we mistaken that to say that, oh, it's all God has given. So we, what happens is we will slowly go away from God and we don't even realize. That's what happened to um, um, even Jesus, when he was 12 years old and, you know, parents took him to Jerusalem and they were coming, even they forgot Jesus there. Even they did not know that their baby is not there with them. You know, sometimes it happens most of the times like that. So Samson, think about Samson. Samson was a powerful man. And God called him and said, hey, you know, you... And, you know, Judges chapter 6 tells us that he did not even know that God's spirit has left him. What a sad thing. Sometimes we become too comfortable in the presence of God that we don't even realize that there is a presence of God. That's what happened to uh, this uh, people of Israel. And then this guy comes and tells, hey, you are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Now I have come to warn you of the coming judgment of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, and he calls them to prepare to meet God. Then what was the result? And none of the Israelites listened to the message of Amos. And you know, they you know, let it go, well, let him be alone, let him preach whatever and all that. And um, two years later, the earthquake came and swallowed all the wealth they had. And afterwards, whatever was left, that was carried away by Assyrians. So what I'm trying to say is, they instead of repenting, they have went on their own comfortable life. Had they repented, God must have spared them from their judgment and their people, their wealth. Now, this is the whole story background of the book of Amos. Now, I wanted to bring three lessons for us today. First one is, God uses this this insignificant person, any insignificant person, whether you have education, you have no education, whether you're from a village, you're from rich, but God uses for his purpose. That is what a lesson that we can get from the book of Amos. Actually, this comes from the life of Amos himself. Actually, he was criticized by those people who were hearing his message. And if you go uh, to chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, there is a priest at Bethel. His name is Amaziah. He attacks Amos at his message. 
And also he sends a letter against Amos to Jeroboam, saying, throw him out of the country. He is trying to speak against you. And also, he's abusing him, saying that, well, you are coming all the way from Judah, and now you, why don't you go back and earn your bread in your country? And you have come, in other words, you have come to earn bread here by prophesying. So that means they did not fully believe. But he was genuine. Then he's giving a response in Amos chapter 3 verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? I have come to bring that prophecy because God has spoken. I have left my work. I had figs. I farm. And I have, I have my money. I have my job. I have left all that because God has picked me up to come and prophesy you. I'm not coming on my own. But they did not. Why do you think they did not listen to the message of God through Amos? And if you read chapter 7 and analyze verse 14 and 15, the response or the way Amaziah puts words, you understand that Israel has a kind of bit enmity with Judah, you know, because they are bifurcated from them. And now they're saying, why don't you go back to your country? That means he's a short-term prophet coming to Israel. So they don't respect anyone coming from outside. So that's one reason they, they did not heed to him. And the second reason is that he does not come from the school of prophets. He's not a professional prophet. Then, you know, they were thinking, well, you're not a trained prophet. How can we think that this prophecy is true? You know, we don't see all that, but that's the background. So he was attacked in that way too. And now they're saying, you get out from here and go and earn your bread. You don't have to make money out of uh, prophecies that threaten us. So, and also he comes from an unimportant poor village. So that is, that's all he had. So he does not know how to impress. He had visions. He knows how to bring examples from fruits, examples from basket. That's what his visions are. Because that is the way he grew up. So you cannot bring good examples of aeroplane, like, you know. They're all rich people. He cannot give examples of ivory and furniture that is very expensive and uh, summer houses. He couldn't do any of those things. But he brought all that he had because God told him. He self-taught and God taught. But whatever, God used him. He contextualized, he stayed there. You know what, what was the result? And some scholars say that he was thrown out of the country right after his prophecy. And some say that even he was killed because of his prophecies in Israel. You know, I think of sometimes my own country where God is bringing a revival. And you have no idea how the harvest is becoming plentiful there and then, you know, God is, um, you know, bringing a revival and people are, you know, flocking um, into uh, faith and on the other side, persecution. You know, so many people come to Christ at the same time. Nobody talk about the mission. Some people who come and introduce their mission here, nobody talk about how many people are going back from faith. They only talk about how many people are coming. So in India, we have 
villages after villages responding to the gospel, preached by simplest people from the village, preached by uneducated people who never went to Bible school. But at the same time, those communities who come to faith when persecution comes, when misunderstanding comes, when it comes to the um, marriage issues and all that, they all go back to their own former religion. You know, that is our situation there because they do not have training and people are looking into something like Israelite people have looked into Amos. Had Amos has been a, a member of, uh, you know, that priest community in Israel, I don't know, they must have heard Amos preaching with the fullest of respect. Had he, um, you know, gone through some kind of training or from the school of prophets from that lineage and all, oh, yeah, yeah, let's listen, let's repent. They must have kneeled down. But, you know, they did not, although he did, but God used him, but they perished because they did not listen. It's not his problem. In India, we have just opposite, contrasting thing. Now, what happens is God uses all simplest pastors because they receive God's call in the, in the visions, in the dreams, and they just go, they leave their job. I'm not talking about these, these people as hi-fi people. They are sometimes some school teachers, sometimes they are like uh, uh, Borwell uh, repairing people, and all God uses everybody, but they are the people who are making a difference in the ministry there. Now, in 2011, a Times of India magazine published um, an article saying freelancers of God mushrooming across the nation. And they're saying how effective these simple people that God has called to bring so many people into faith. And at the same time, the article highlights how many people are going back because they are not effective for long term. Because they do not have any training. That is where God called us uh, to go and train these pastors. That's what we have done in the last three and a half months, 527. You know, I want to thank this church. This church also helps us uh, train those pastors. Now, let's move on. This vision that we got that these pastors do not have training to impress or the message is not becoming uh, effective there because of certain things, um, you know, there are so many Hindus turning their back on Christ. So my wife and I have been traveling uh, in train uh, from my state to uh, the central India. Uh, we had almost 12 hours journey and uh, in our coach we had uh, about 30 women, older Hindu women going to Hindu pilgrimage, a place called Badrinath. And we happened, uh, you know, exchanging communication. We were talking, and uh, in our conversation, this lady, uh, all of us are out of the blue, said, hey, why are we all becoming Christians? She thought I'm also Hindu. I said, I don't know. <laughs> then she said, you know what? Christians provide little rice, they give little clothes to the poor, and they make everybody converts. I said, yeah, that's true. I said, <laughs> because I want to know more about what is uh, in her heart, you know? So she told so much, and then, you know, we exchanged so many ideas between that, and I said, yeah, 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 and finally I said, we need to kill the guy who first brought Christianity to India. Let's catch hold of them. Do you know who is that? She said, no, no, they're all from America. They're all from Europe. That's what she said. I said, no, 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 no. You know, there was, I know something about the history of religions here, and actually Christianity has come to India in the first century itself. 
and it has been brought by one of the disciples of Jesus called St. Thomas. And when he came to India and he saw Brahmins taking the water uh, in the river early morning while they are taking ceremonial bath and they are throwing the water into the air to offer uh, their worship and life, pure life to God, Son God. And then Thomas walks by that, uh, you know, pond and then asks, hey, why are you throwing the waters up? And he said, hey, don't you know that? We are offering our prayers to God early morning. Then he said, well, your God does not listen to you. That's why the water is coming back. <laughs> he said, well, you know, Brahmins are very, very tough there. And they, they, then he called, hey, you want to do something? Come here. Where are you from? Which God you are serving? Then he said, well, I'm serving a living God. Then he said, okay, so can you show that your God will accept the waters? He said, sure. So he jumped into the waters. This is the history, actually. If you go to um, the South Indian tradition of St. Thomas in India, you'll find the story there. So he jumps into the water. He takes the water and he prays and throws and the water remains there. And it is true. You know what? He established seven Brahmin churches. The church in India in the first century was high caste church. He established seven churches, large churches, all Brahmins. They just closed down the temples. They all became Christians. <laughs> Hallelujah. So that was, you know, then I told this story to these people in the train. And they said, wow, that's great. I didn't know that this is the guy who brought Christianity to India. Tell us more about him and Jesus. And I began telling, but I said, see, somebody, some Brahmin who did not like him, he actually killed him when he was praying on a mount there. And, oh, why that fellow killed him? He was doing nice work. Then I told him, I'm proud to be Christian because we should not, you know, we should not misunderstand Christians because of their wrongdoing, but let us look at Jesus Christ. And she was so upset. All of a sudden she said, you are Christian, we didn't know that. But you know what? I hate Christians. And especially the pastors. Because these pastors, I'm talking about Indian pastors, not here. Indian pastors, they have, you know, they have nothing about, they have know nothing about the word of God, but they go and preach the word of God. And she was using all abusive words on pastors. And I said, what's the background? Why are you saying all this? Why are you upset with Christians? And she said, they had a, she, she had a meeting in her village where a pastor comes and preaches and preaches to 50 people, but the whole village is open because we speak in the loudspeakers outside. So gospel is preached to 50, but heard among 500 people. So they were all listening to the gospel, but all of a sudden, this man, pastor, got up and he began taking a text from Isaiah saying that your idols do not have eyes to see. And your, idol, your idols do not have nose to smell, no ears to hear. And he began attacking the Hindu gods and he lost the opportunity. And she is telling me, if I were in his place, I would not do that way. He missed an opportunity. He comes here, but you know, how many people, 500 people he is preaching to, but he's only thinking about 50 people who are there. So what I'm trying to say is, he lost an opportunity. When she said that, it is like someone is piercing a lancer into my heart. Because she's not talking about someone else. She's talking about me, a fellow pastor somewhere. I do not know the name. 
Then the Lord spoke to us. You know, I said, God, we are in our best seminary there in the U.S. Asbury Seminary doing PhD for what? God gave opportunities. Good, excellent, everything is going well. But what is the use? I wanted to come back and help these pastors and build up. That is, the, that is the one I'm talking about. We, we need this actually, like God uses insignificant persons, but for long term, it may not be good in, 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 in Indian context. So we began training these pastors. So here what happened was Amos was great and he heard the word of, word of God and he went, he obeyed. So whatever it may be, his words came true. So what I'm trying to say is God uses the insignificant people, of course. It's a privilege to have more education so that you'll be more careful. You know how to make sense to all kinds of people if you have good education, but at the same time, if God call you, any limitation cannot hold you back from preaching. So take that word today that God is calling anybody insignificant irrespective of age, color, or whatever God uses if he calls you. Now the second thing I wanted to bring before you is privilege demands responsibility. Yemus has come to Israel, he wants to tell them that they are privileged people. That's one thing he wants to tell. But they forgot the responsibility attached to the privilege. Privilege comes with a price. And now, he reminds them that God has called you from whole earth, from among all nations, God has chosen you. For what? To represent God. God addresses them so fondly in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the family of God. Can you, th can you imagine? Family of God? Israel, what a, what a powerful. But they forgot their responsibility because they thought God shows favoritism you know, to them or the rest of the uh, nations. And they said, oh, we can commit sins bl uh, blatantly because, you know, God can forgive us because we are a family of God. They are mistaken. You know, sometimes that's what we do, even if we are, we are a privileged nation. You know, I, I, I'm sure none of you are beaten on your skin. I mean, none of you uh, took slaps for Christ. It's a privilege, like here, you know, uh, like nobody can slap each other because of your faith, but persecution is also coming this side. In, in, you know, in 1800s, when uh, Hindus wants to send their children to US for best education, they made a law saying that there is no foreign travel for Hindus. You know why? Because that time, U.S. was very passionate for Christ. Anybody they see, they will go and witness about Christ to them. So they thought if anybody goes from here to U.S. and they cannot return back without becoming, becoming a Christian. So they were so afraid. But now there is no fear because we lost passion here. We have no passion for God or no passion for people. So now what happened? The whole, whole world is coming. I'm not against people immigrating here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about 
the, the, the core thing that is inside, why there is no fear for people to come in because it has become a free land, even freedom to, to, to be away from passion. So we need that, that responsibility along with the privilege that we have. Sometimes we need to walk our talk. Today we preach so much and we evangelize, but why people are not responding? Of course, there are so many arguments that they don't respond to your gospel. They don't do this, they don't do this because, you know, uh, that is the way they are because the seed goes on the hard soil. But let me tell you, we are, we are ought to preach whether they listen or not. But sometimes we are effective, sometimes we are not. But we have to, but what I'm trying to say is mostly we need to walk our talk. That is the most important thing. If we don't, it's hard. So now, once upon a time, um, a woman brought her young son in front of Gandhi. You know Gandhi, right? And asked Gandhi, Babuji, I have brought my son. Would you please tell him to stop eating candies? Every day, every morning, no food but candies. He wants to eat. Would you please admonish him not to eat candies? Then Gandhi looked at this uh, woman and the son. Well, well, that's a good idea, I would tell, of course. But can you bring him next week? Not now. Can you bring him next week? So this woman went and then came back next week with, the son, with, with her son and asked, Gandhiji, you asked me to come next week, so I came now. Would you please admonish my son not to eat candies? Then he said, sure. So he told, well, son, you should not eat candies because they are not good for health. Don't eat candies. That's it. Okay, take your son. Then she was surprised and she came to ask Gandhi, Gandhi, that's so simple. You said not to eat and it's not good for health. I thought you will take half an hour and admonish him. That's all you did. What happened? It just, but you should have told this last week itself. Why you asked me to come again this week? Why you didn't tell last week? You know what he said? Well, last week I was also eating candies. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that is, that is the problem that we have today. You know, as Christians, we need to walk our talk. We have a response. Christians, not just to live, but live with the testimony. Live with the message and the privilege that God has given us. What God has given us as a New Testament Christians. God has given us a privilege to be a witness for him. If you come to Matthew chapter 28, verses beginning from 18 to 20, you go all into the world. And preach good news to everybody. Make disciples of my name. I mean, that is the responsibility, the basic responsibility. No one has this privilege in the world. No religion has this. But we have it. And the second responsibility that we have is the social action. If you come to Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, and it tells that the second important commandment is love your neighbors as yourself. That is the second important commandment. And of course, we do that. You know, well, you know sometimes it, that satisfies our soul, but that's our core responsibility. That's what James emphasizes in chapter one, verse 27. The true religion is what? To take care of the widows and the children. Now the third responsibility as Christians is that we need to let it keep going, the task of evangelism. We should not stop it. Keep going. You know something, you share it. Like we have this, 
This is, you should be like, I was, I was thinking like, if you see something, say something. You see, that's American thing, right? If you see something, say something. That's, but now people are saying, if you see something, say something, and click something. You need to take a photograph. <laughs> so, like that, today, if you see a miracle, share it with others. That will increase faith. You know, when we have this baby, we were walking in calls for buying a clothes for his uh, dedication that day. And we were going and searching. And one man I saw, he has a baby on his shoulders. And uh, the Lord's Spirit was telling me, go and talk to him. And I said, why should I talk? He's an Indian, but Indians don't talk when they are in the U.S. Same thing like when, when, when some of you go there and you are different, different there you don't talk, that's what it is. So in calls that guy, tall guy, but the Spirit of the Lord told me to talk to him and I had no idea how to even begin a conversation. So I went on asking him, how old is the baby? He said five months, oh good, so how old is the second guy? Um, he said five years, oh wow, great. I'm like, what else? How would I go further? I don't know what to do. Then I asked, how many children do you have? Then, you know, quickly, all silence. He came closer to me. He said, brother, we are desperate for children. We don't have any kids. They are not my kids. They are my wife's sister's kids. And I called my wife, come here. Show the baby, show this baby. This is a, an answer to 11 years of prayer. That was the, then I told, do you know there was a guy who gave birth to, uh, you know, a baby, uh, 100 years. And 90 years, you know. Oh, really? Where did you see that? I said, I, I have the evidences. I, I began telling the story. He doesn't know anything about Bible. <laughs> He's a Hindu, staunch Hindu Brahmin hybrid. And I shared out that. Then I came to Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the surprise. And finally I said, Manohar James, who is that guy? I said, this is me. This is my baby here. What I'm trying to say is, God gives certain privilege to each one of us. I'll create some miracle in our life, not to keep for ourselves, but to share so that it will enhance faith in others. Now, let's move on to the third lesson from the book of Amos. That is, spirituality requires evidences. Spirituality requires evidence. What is the evidence that God has called? In India, we have, we have evidence when God calls them. One is that they change their names, which is bad. <laughs> Narayan Murthy, my dad's name is Narayan Murthy, and they changed to David Brainard. I mean, they, nobody knows, and they can't even pronounce properly there. But somebody, some Christian guy told, oh, come on. That is, that is one thing they do, but that's not right thing. And then second evidence is what? They change clothes. They never wear other than white, white and white. <laughs> and my dad used to say that, you know, even drinking Coca-Cola is wrong because that has a color that is similar to brandy or you know beer so some changes that don't mean anything innately but outward changes you know we sometimes do that so we need to look for evidences not outward evidences but inward evidences we need some of the evidences that we see here in galatians chapter 5 if you come to Galatians chapter 5, you see the evidences. And then Paul begins saying in chapter 5 verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. That's very, very important for us. It is, it is so simple to listen to something and then and live from the other side. But living by the Spirit is so important. Then he tells about the qualities of 
a person who does not live by the Spirit and someone who lives by the Spirit. And then he moves on saying in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, some of these, these things are taught in yoga class. Yoga, but that's already here. Yoga is recent, but you know, that's already here in our Bible. But we are moving into yoga because we are crossing from here. We have self-control. We don't need to practice here. You just need the Spirit of God. Self-control comes in. We need to live by the Spirit. That is what spirituality requires evidences. And now, Israelites thought going to temples every morning and then giving, I mean going to the uh, altars, giving sacrifices and bringing tithes every three years and bringing tank offering, free will offering, all that they were, you know, mechanically practiced. They thought we are in the center of God's will. But God tells, you are too far from me. Too far, you can't even imagine. So that is what our condition most of the times. We even do not know that sometimes, you know, we are too away from God. So they had no concern for the law. And they were oppressing the poor. And, you know, they had no, no, they had no concern for even the neighbors there. And they put their hope in their religion and trust in their wealth. And God has plundered all that with the warning. The warning was not to, not to fulfill the judgment. The warning was to tell that there is a mercy in the judgment. But if only you prepare to meet the Lord. If only you stop going to Gilgal. If only you stop going to Bethel. Bethel has become a presence of the idols rather than the presence of God. May God give us that passion from this book of Amos to realize that God uses us, however simple we are, however um, uneducated we are, God uses us. And we need to realize that we have a responsibility. We are privileged people. Believe me, my friends, many people do not have the privilege you guys have here. Sit and listen. People are hiding and listening. You have underground churches in China where people cannot publicly worship. And in Iran, Iran, they're, they're, you know, you can't. You know, one lady was carrying a Bible. You know what happened? Somebody saw, reported that this lady is a Christian and, you know, proselytizing. And they actually pulled her nails one by one, the whole nail with the pliers. Such is the situation around the world, but God has given us privilege. Use your resources to, to you know, practice your responsibility, to put that into practice, all that privileges that you have. And also, make sure that we have the evidences in us. People should look at us, not at our words, but our lives, so that people can just follow us. Oh, here is the person I wanted to follow. Here is the person I wanted. So I want you to become little Christ. That's what I used to say to my students in India when I, when I was teaching their Bible school. Hey, you are all small little Christ before them. You are walking, you are a living Christ for them. You know, we read Bibles, that, but they read us. They don't read Bibles, they don't have Bibles, but we are Bibles for them. We are an open book for them. May God give us that passion. And may God return us that passion that once we had so that the world will see the goodness and mercy and glory from this nation. God bless you. Thank you for the opportunity.